Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of sex work, murder, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On an early morning in June 1975, a traffic constable, who we'll call Michael, roared through the streets of Perth on his motorcycle. The policeman was supposed to be performing his daily rounds, but he couldn't focus. All he could think about was Shirley Finn. She'd been killed on the 22nd, but he'd seen her just a few days before. He'd been playing pool at the police bar when he saw a group of people enter. He recognized Vice Squad Chief Detective Bernie Johnson with Shirley right beside him. He thought it was odd to see a notorious madam out with a police captain. After Shirley met her fate, he tried to tell his superiors, but they didn't seem very concerned, and that weighed on him. This was a murder. Any clue, no matter how small, should be investigated. At least, that's what he'd been taught. Constable Michael slowed at a stop sign, lost in his thoughts. He didn't hear the car until it was almost on him. The brakes squealed as the driver rammed into his motorcycle. Four men leapt from the car. One of them leveled a gun at him. When one spoke, it chilled him to the bone. Shut your mouth! If you want to live or see your children again, shut your mouth! This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the death of Shirley Finn. Last week, we covered the notorious madam's connections to Perth police and politicians and her ongoing tax troubles. This week, we'll cover how the police investigation hit a dead end, letting Shirley's killer live free for over 40 years. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. In the early morning of Monday, June 23, 1975, a beat cop noticed a white Dodge Phoenix abandoned at the Royal Perth Golf Club. 
Inside, a woman with short blonde hair and a long ball gown lay slumped in her seat. She was covered in blood. The officer grabbed the radio at his waist. Far above him, thunder rumbled. As the first detective's car squealed in, fat raindrops fell from the sky. Detective Bernie Johnson was one of the first on the scene. He recognized the car immediately. It was his old friend, Madam Shirley Finn. What have we got? It's not pretty. One gunshot wound to the left side of the head. Looks like it came from the passenger side window. Three more from the driver's side. Our girl wasn't just killed. She was executed. All right. Good work, boys. Looks like we've got all we can from the scene. Finish up your work, and then I want you to drive the car back to the station. Detective Johnson? What? It's just... We only just started. We need to set up a perimeter, sir. There are a dozen people. Cops, medical, journalists. I'm just afraid with the rain they'll mess up any footprints. We need to cover the scene before anything washes away. And if we could just open the trunk before Are we... you a detective? No, sir, but... Not a detective. That's right. And are you telling me how to do my job? No, sir. Good. That's what I thought. Get this packed up as quick as you can and drive the car back to the station. And don't open the trunk until I get there. From the start, it seemed like the Perth police weren't taking the investigation seriously. According to later court testimony, they stood by as journalists and curious bystanders trampled the ground near Shirley's car, destroying any footprints. And they insisted on driving Shirley's car back to the station. Normal protocol probably would have been to tow the car to preserve any evidence inside. Most damningly, there's no indication the Perth police ever checked the trunk. Shirley's girlfriend, Rose Black, said there were two bags of cash in there on the night of Shirley's murder. The money never materialized during the investigation. Perhaps because of her claims, police circled in on Rose Black as a main suspect, and they found some inconsistencies in her story. According to Rose, Shirley asked her to stay with a friend on the night of the murder. Shirley claimed she had an important meeting and needed privacy. Shirley also tried to get her 13-year-old daughter Bridget out of the house, but eventually just sent the girl to bed early. It was odd that Shirley seemed so concerned about Rose meeting her mysterious contact, but didn't seem to care as much about her daughter. And ultimately, all of this planning was useless, because Shirley's rendezvous ended up happening at the Perth Golf Club. The police thought that Rose's claims seemed scattered, and that meant she might be hiding something. When police tested the clothes Rose was wearing the night of Shirley's death, they didn't find any gunpowder residue, but they did find a small bloodstain Rose couldn't explain. But as the investigation went on, police failed to find any additional evidence against Rose. At a certain point, it seemed like they willfully ignored any clues that didn't point to her, and there were plenty of those. For example, many of Shirley's friends and business associates reported that she kept a diary where she kept track of her illicit business liaisons. She had even told her ex-husband, Des Finn, that the diary was her insurance policy. In the days after her murder, the diary was nowhere to be found. It had apparently vanished into thin air. 
Remember that before her death, Shirley had been working closely with members of Perth's law enforcement. She'd set up state-sanctioned brothels with them, and some have speculated that she helped them with money laundering schemes as well. If the contents of the diary were made public, it could reveal the extreme corruption of the Perth PD, which gave them very good reason to lose this crucial piece of evidence. While some evidence seemed to disappear, other clues were deliberately mishandled. One officer reported seeing two photo albums in Shirley's house the day after the murders. Flipping through, he was shocked to recognize senior police officials smiling and posing with Shirley at a party. By the time the albums got to the police station, those photos were missing. The albums eventually vanished completely. Nearly six months after the investigation began, the cop who reported the photo albums received a strange phone call. Hello? Officer Colin Rowe? Yes. Keep your mouth shut. What? Who is this? Keep your bloody mouth shut. Who is this? Hello? Hello? While the voice remained anonymous, Colin could trace its origin. Whoever had threatened him called from an internal police number. Colin wasn't the only one having strange dealings with the police. Many other witnesses reported that their statements were completely ignored. For instance, about six months after the murder, a 10-year-old girl was fishing with her brother on the Swan River in South Perth. She felt her hook catch on something and reeled in a piece of waterlogged fabric. It was a car seat cover, brown and made of terry cloth. It looked just like the one from Shirley Finn's car. The girl cast her line again and pulled up a long, thin gun. It was an on-shoots 22 caliber rifle. According to the papers, that was the type of gun that killed Shirley Finn. The family claimed that they had handed the seat cover and the rifle over to the police. They never heard anything about it again. When reporters asked the lead detective about the weapon, he insisted that no one had pulled a rifle out of the river that year. Other witness reports were also dismissed. Several people driving by the Royal Perth Golf Club noted a dark green car parked next to Shirley's on the night of the murder. But the police didn't seem interested. Perth PD, how may I direct your call? Another tip about Shirley Finn. Look, I'm sure this green car was nothing special. We have enough information for our investigation. It's probably best to forget the whole thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You have a nice day. Even though one couple, the Mirans, claimed to have had the license plate number of the green car, they were ignored. But compared to other witnesses, they got off easy. After Constable Michael reported seeing Shirley Finn at the police canteen in the days before her murder, four men crashed into his motorcycle and threatened him at gunpoint. When he complained to a higher officer, another cop showed up at his house to intimidate him. It appeared that there were members of the Perth PD who didn't want anyone looking too closely at Shirley's murder. They just wanted the investigation to be over. On March 19, 1976, police handed the case over to the county coroner, claiming they had no leads left to pursue. It had only been 10 months since Shirley died. 
Even though the case was officially closed, that didn't stop the search for answers. Throughout the 1970s and 1980s, a few people tried to find Shirley's killer themselves. But in order to do that, they had to expose the alleged corruption that ran through the Perth police. Next, we'll cover the fight to save Perth. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the podcast series Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. When the Perth police closed Shirley's case in March 1976, it felt like the truth of Shirley's murder would be buried with her. But in the years after her death, the public learned that she'd made a fortune as a madam. They pressured the government to look into the brothel trade in Perth. The state agreed to investigate, and a royal commission on sex work officially began on November 7, 1975. The commission was investigating the police just as the police were looking into Shirley's death. At this point, it should be noted that Shirley definitely was in cahoots with the police, at least at certain points in her life. It was later confirmed that they helped her set up state-sanctioned brothels and that she paid them protection money. But no such confirmation had come out in 1975, and it appears that the police took quite a few steps to keep it that way. Right before the commission began looking into internal corruption, the police union announced a new policy. Any policeman who reported another cop to an outsider would be expelled. Break the code of silence, and you'd lose your job. One of the main witnesses for the state's prosecution against the police was a police superintendent named Spike Daniels. Unfortunately, rather than investigating his claims, the judge seemed more concerned with tearing his testimony apart. Your Honor, back in 1973, I warned that immunity for certain brothels would only lead to more crime. I believe that by allowing madams such as Dory Flatman and Shirley Flynn to operate freely, the Perth police have made room for corruption and violence. I see. Tell me, Superintendent Daniels, have you ever been examined by a psychiatrist? <sighs> I obtained an assessment from Dr. Alan German in 1973. I have no issues with my sanity. Interesting. Several of your colleagues and supervisors have testified to you appearing mentally unstable. Your Honor, they're leading a coordinated campaign against me. If you'll speak with Dr. German, he'll confirm that Chief Superintendent Owen Leach called him daily back then, demanding the doctor find me unfit. 
Superintendent Daniels, if you knew your mental state was not a problem, why did you feel the need to get an assessment? Your Honor, I have been found fit to serve, and my mental state is not what this inquiry is about. Cops are running illegal brothels in Perth. They're on the take, and if the law was enforced, maybe poor Shirley Finn would still be here today. The Royal Commission went nowhere. The lawyers, investigators, and judge all seem to have already decided the outcome. Rather than investigating Spike Daniels' claims, many of the examinations focused on his sanity. At one point, burglars even broke into Spike's files. In another instance, someone assaulted a witness, causing her to miss her court date. The judge didn't seem interested in finding her attacker. The judge submitted their findings from the commission in May 1976, just two months after police closed Shirley's case. The judge found no evidence of corruption in the Perth Police Department. Over the next few decades, a few inquiries attempted to break the code of silence surrounding the police. There was a corruption probe in 1982, and in 2005, Shirley's daughter Bridget tried to open a new investigation into her mother's death. But none of these attempts were successful. And there was one big reason the case may not have gone anywhere. Detective Bernie Johnson. He was responsible for setting up Shirley in the brothel business. He also became the head of internal affairs in 1981 meaning he was the one investigating claims of police misconduct. Shirley's daughter, Bridget, refused to give in. She worked with Juliet Wills, an investigative journalist writing a book about Shirley, to push for a new inquiry. In 2012, Bridget asked the Perth police to hand over the files relating to her mother's death to an independent authority. They took their time responding. But in 2016... Bridget's efforts finally had an impact. The state coroner's court launched an official inquest into Shirley's death. As the inquest went on, the investigators became fairly certain that the police were involved somehow, but it was unclear who exactly pulled the trigger. They had an entire rogues gallery of suspects. First on the docket, Rose Black. Police believed Rose's story about Shirley kicking her out of the house for a meeting with a mystery guest seemed suspect, and they did find a small bloodstain on her clothes. But there are far more allegations and pieces of evidence pointing towards the police than towards Rose. Perhaps Rose was just an easy person to pin the investigation on. And while the police were pursuing Rose, a much more sinister character was stalking Perth a man named Nettie Smith. Nettie Smith was a criminal and hitman who operated in Sydney in the 1970s and 1980s. While he was convicted for two murders in 1989, it's thought he committed many more. Nettie claimed that cops gave him a green light to break the law. He testified in court that they even contracted him to commit robberies, all under the protection of the state. Back in 1975, Nettie was fresh out of jail after serving time for rape and assault. After getting some civilian clothes and other supplies, he went to see an old friend to set him up for life outside. Nettie, how long have you been out? Barely a few days. I can't help feeling like I need to look over my shoulder. 
I remember that feeling. It gets easier, you know. Come here, Nettie. I've got something for you. Nah, I'm all right. I don't need any cash. You will shortly. And here, this is for you, too. A 22. Ah, oh, she's a beauty. Take the silencer. Believe me, you're gonna need it. Nettie claimed that almost immediately after getting his freedom, his friend gave him some cash and a gun to get him started. He soon fell in with the Sydney underworld and became known as a reliable piece of muscle and sometimes even a hitman. During the 2017 inquiry into Shirley Finn's death, a former police detective testified that he heard Nettie killed Shirley Finn. According to the tipster, Nettie flew to Perth the night of Shirley's murder. The detective confirmed with the airlines that Nettie had, in fact, flown to Perth around June 22, 1975. The detective said he passed the information along to his supervisor, Don Hancock, just a few weeks after Shirley was killed. It looked like a promising lead, but Don told him to drop the whole thing. As far as the detective knew, no one else looked into Nettie's involvement, ever. The tipster may have been on to something. Nettie certainly had no qualms about committing violent crimes, and he'd been paid off by crooked cops in Sydney to do their dirty work. Perhaps the same thing happened in Perth, and someone from the Perth PD hired him to kill Shirley Finn. Coming up, the coroner uncovers a circle of corrupt cops. Now back to the story. As the 2017 inquiry into Shirley Finn's death went on, it began to seem like there was no clear-cut single suspect who had the means, motive, and opportunity to kill Shirley. Instead, investigators suspected that the killing was a group effort, allegedly perpetrated by a police gang called the Purple Circle. Witnesses allege that the Purple Circle included many people who knew Shirley, like Police Minister Ray O'Connor, Superintendent Owen Leach, and Criminal Investigator Bureau Chief Don Hancock. And supposedly, the leader of it all was Vice Detective Bernie Johnson. It felt like the question was not whether the Purple Circle had killed Shirley Finn, but which member. All of them had reason to want Shirley out of the way. When Shirley Finn's former driver, Lee Varis-Besick, took the stand, she pointed a suspicious finger at Ray O'Connor. And what makes you believe your employer, Miss Finn, was romantically involved with Ray O'Connor? I used to drive them up to King's Park and take them to the Swan River. Nine times out of ten, they'd have a bottle of wine. They were having a great old time. And this is in spite of the fact that the late Mr. O'Connor claimed he did not know Miss Flynn. Oh, he knew her all right. Not long before she died, she asked him for help, for money to pay off the tax office. The conversation I heard between Shirley and Ray O'Connor was, if I go down, you go down. At the time of Shirley's death, rumors circulated that she'd been having an affair with the police minister, but Ray claimed he'd never met her. Remember that an album of pictures from Shirley's house went missing during the investigation? One detective recalled seeing pictures of Shirley and Ray together in the album. 
And evidence suggests that it was Ray partnering with Vice Detective Bernie Johnson who set Shirley up as a madam in the first place. In 1974 and 1975, Shirley told multiple people that a friend, possibly a politician, was going to help her with her tax bill. She even borrowed money from her father to give to this politician. It seemed like this friend was Ray O'Connor. Finally, Ray's secretary at the time would later testify in court that Bernie Johnson was present at a meeting with Ray and several businessmen on June 20th, 1975 two days before Shirley died. Perhaps Ray wanted Shirley dead. If she went public with their affair, it could ruin him. And this wouldn't be the first time Ray was involved with corrupt elements, though he'd never been convicted of any crimes during his time as police minister. His next position was a different story. In 1982, he became premier of the state of Western Australia. He was later convicted for fraud and jailed for six years. However, Ray wasn't investigated in 1975. And by the time the inquiry got underway in 2017, it was too late to cross-examine him. Ray had died four years earlier. Even if Ray did plan the murder, it's not likely that he pulled the trigger. Lee Varis Besick accused Detective John Hancock, another alleged member of the Purple Circle, of performing the hit. In 2004, you received a call from a friend of yours shortly after Detective Don Hancock died in a bomb blast. Yes, I remember. It was all over the news. My old boyfriend, Detective Tony Lewandowski, called me and said, the person who shot Shirley Finn is now dead. Did Detective Lewandowski say anything else about the murder? Sure did. He said he drove the car that met Shirley that night. It was him and one other person. Don Hancock was the trigger man. Lee wasn't the only witness to claim that Don Hancock shot Shirley. A man named Steve Quacko also testified he'd seen Don that night. According to Steve, he had stopped on a freeway near the Royal Perth Golf Club on June 22, 1975. He noticed a police van next to a white Dodge. A woman sat inside. Steve testified he saw a man with silver hair and large black eyebrows climb into the white car. He identified the man as Detective Don Hancock. As soon as Steve heard about Shirley's death, he tried to report what he'd seen to the police, but they didn't want to hear it. When he called, the officer who answered hung up without even getting his name. Don died in 2001, long before the inquest. Like police minister Ray O'Connor, it's hard to find any conclusive evidence that Don was the killer. But even if he didn't shoot Shirley, many people still believe he was involved in the cover-up. For example, he was the supervisor who told a detective to stop looking into Nettie Smith. While Nettie Smith, Ray O'Connor, and Don Hancock all came up at some point during the 2017 inquest, one man's name appeared nearly every day, the Purple Circle's alleged ringleader, Detective Bernie Johnson. During the 2017 inquiry, 50 separate witnesses linked Bernie Johnson to Shirley Finn. According to multiple accounts, He'd been collecting protection money from her for years. Witnesses described Bernie as a terrifying figure. 
At the time of the murder, he allegedly had extensive contacts with organized crime and collected dirt on lawyers, politicians, and other police officers. While Bernie was never officially investigated for Shirley's murder back in the 70s, Perth police did look into his crooked dealings. In 1982, an internal review revealed that Bernie had 10 properties and at least one expensive yacht. He definitely couldn't afford those things on a policeman's salary. Bernie's finances were investigated four separate times, but each time he was cleared of any crime. However, according to many witnesses, he was either committing fraud or laundering money. It's possible Bernie wanted Shirley dead because she threatened to expose him. The detective refused to speak to the media for decades, but in 2008, he acquiesced to an interview with Channel 9 News. In the tape, the reporter asked Bernie point-blank if he had anything to do with Shirley's death. Did you kill Shirley Finn? No. Have you got any idea who may have killed Shirley Finn? Not in the slightest. No. In 2017, however, a few witnesses testified that Bernie did know who the murderer was. Philip Hooper claimed that on June 22, 1975, the night of Shirley Finn's murder, he and a girlfriend were parked near the Royal Perth Golf Club. They were listening to the radio when they heard shouts down the course. Assuming it was a couple having a fight, they turned the radio out. But the music didn't drown out the sound of four gunshots. Shortly after, two men with guns approached the car. They threatened to shoot Philip Hooper and his girlfriend if they didn't keep quiet. Philip watched them cross back to the other side of the street and speak with a third man who he identified as Bernie Johnson. Philip claimed he'd been threatened and harassed multiple times after witnessing Shirley's murder. One time, he said, Bernie Johnson even held a gun to his head. Because of this, Philip waited until 1994 to make a statement to the police. Others claimed Bernie mentioned Shirley's death to them often in the form of threats. One woman remembered refusing to help Bernie frame someone in an unrelated case. She said Bernie told her she had to comply, otherwise she'd end up just like Shirley Finn. Another witness said that his co-worker was having an affair with a detective in the late 1980s. He told the inquest that one day in 1986, the woman said Bernie admitted to the murder. Though Bernie Johnson was still alive during the 2017 inquest, he wasn't able to speak for himself. Bernie suffered from advanced dementia, making his testimony unreliable. And he passed away about a year into the investigation. The coroner published his findings in August 2020. He couldn't definitively name Shirley's killer, but he did say that the original police investigation could not be trusted. He believed Shirley Finn was most likely killed by someone she attempted to blackmail. She knew something that would damage their reputations and was threatening to talk. In his opinion, Rose Black most likely wasn't the culprit. Of the many viable suspects, Ray O'Connor, Don Hancock, Nettie Smith, and Bernie Johnson, it was impossible to tell which one of them actually did it. All of them likely wanted to keep Shirley quiet, 
Many of them were implicated by multiple witnesses, but it was impossible to say who exactly planned the hit or fired the gun. Ray O'Connor may have planned the murder, but most likely didn't commit it. Witnesses placed both Don Hancock and Bernie Johnson at the scene, meaning one of them may have executed Shirley, or they may have stood by as a hired hitman, Nettie Smith, pulled the trigger. What seems most likely is that Shirley was the victim of a conspiracy, probably between Perth police and local politicians. These men used their influence and abused their power to deliberately throw off the investigation and silence witnesses. It's been 47 years since Shirley Finn's death. Witnesses have died. Key pieces of physical evidence have gone missing. Without a major breakthrough, Shirley's daughter Bridget will never know what happened that night at the Royal Perth Golf Club. Shirley Finn's murder is a perfect example of what can go wrong when police are able to operate with impunity. Multiple people have come forward to say that the vice squad was breaking laws for their own gain. They may have been laundering money, and according to these witnesses, they were also running a protection racket like an organized crime syndicate. For a while, Shirley Finn allegedly helped them with these schemes, but when she didn't seem useful anymore, they may have killed her off. Then they allegedly mishandled the investigation by throwing away evidence, intimidating witnesses, and refusing to follow legitimate leads. If this is true, they allowed Shirley's murderer to walk free. In Perth in 1975, there was no outside organization holding law enforcement accountable. Anyone from within the ranks who spoke out, such as Spike Daniels, would have their careers and reputations ruined. Maybe if someone was allowed to hold the police accountable, Shirley Finn would still be alive. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Shirley Finn, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dirty Girl, the state-sanctioned murder of brothel madam Shirley Finn by Juliet Wills, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Drew Lawn, Melissa Medina, and Cameron Nicod. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>